Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in up-and-coming Culver City adjacent California, from my house, boasting a rapidly dwindling supply of Planters cheese balls. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, making his long overdue Tully Show return, the drummer of Motion City Soundtrack, podcast producer to the stars, and the host of Bizarre Albums, the world's number one podcast on the subject of unusual and obscure musical long play recordings. Hello, and welcome back, Tony Thaxton. Hello, thank you for having me. It has been way too long. I was trying to remember when the last time was. Has it been this year? No, as a matter of fact, it, it hasn't. I would have guessed that I had spoken to you very shortly before we all went into hibernation. Yeah. But I looked at the document of the stuff we talked about the last time you were on, and we were discussing episode one, maybe episode one and two of The Mandalorian. Oh, okay. Yeah. So feels it, like a different, a different long. life, right? Right. <laughs> so 47 so, years ago. So picking up where we left off, they landed that thing. <laughs> they did, yeah. I actually, I've been, uh, I'm going for like, I don't even know. I, I've been kind of slowly rewatching them again during the last. Uh, well, I did. I already rewatched it once during quarantine, and now I'm going another round. <laughs> yeah, so, why the hell not? Yeah, it's funny. My kid doesn't. He will rewatch. Star Wars movies and scenes of Star Wars movies, even really bad scenes. Uh-huh. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the I've got the high ground lava fight on Mustafar. <laughs> but for some reasons, I guess since it was a TV show and not a movie, it doesn't seem to occur to him that he can keep rewatching that. So we, yeah. we've been one and done with The Mandalorian while anxiously following updates for its still scheduled fall return. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did hear that... They did get it all shot before all this started, I guess. Oh, okay. So I think it's just post-production stuff, which I'm guessing they can continue doing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, as yeah. far as I know, it's supposed to be back in the fall. And the crazy thing is if we did not discuss the Mandalorian in its entirety, then we have not discussed Rise of Skywalker. True. Very true. I'm very curious to hear what you think about Rise of Skywalker, and now that we can talk about it in its totality, the Ray Kylo Ren trilogy. Right. Uh, well, it's 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 funny. That was such a. It seemed like such a polarizing movie. Uh, and honestly, I'm kind of baffled somewhat by people's hatred of it. Uh, the Rise of Skywalker or the trilogy or both. Uh, well, sort of both, but specifically Rise of Skywalker. Uh, because I think I I personally have reached this point in life. Maybe I've said this before on here, but uh, I feel like I'm at this point in my life now where I'm just like, I like things. Or if it's if and if I don't like it, I'm like, eh, it's not for me. And I go into a Star Wars movie wanting it to just. I want to have fun. I want to mm-hmm. I want to sit down for a couple hours and just. Have fun. Just sit back, watch it, enjoy it. What you know, there might be things I don't love here and there, but I go. Then I go. Eh, I don't love that, and then I just move on. Uh, and I think some like when in the past, maybe there were times where things I didn't like would maybe 
bother me a little more. And I think Absolutely. now I'm, I'm able to just kind of brush them off and go, eh, I didn't love that, but uh, I'm enjoying this overall. And uh, so while I think there were some moments in the movie that I didn't necessarily love, I will say those moments were less, uh, how do I say this? I've almost every other Star Wars movie there's there's a point where it almost is this like sinking in my seat moment where I'm just like oh I really don't like this. But I didn't have that moment in Rise of Skywalker. Well, well, you know, the things that I didn't like were were minor to me. Like I didn't have that like sink in my seat moment. Uh, right, there was so, no there was no Last Jedi casino sequence. Right. Yes. Yeah, and I think I've... Uh, yeah, Last Jedi is the perfect thing for me of good, the good and the bad because for that, that movie is extreme highs and extreme lows for me. That's right. Um, but Rise of Skywalker, I was just like, it was fun. I, uh, I thought it, it kind of like wrapped things up in a decent way and uh, I had a good time. That's like as simple as I can put it. Right. Well, it's funny because I have parallel dialogue with Mark McGrath about music and our reaction to music as we get older. And you obviously take it a lot less personally and it's way less um, tied to your sense of like identity or even like self-worth or something mm-hmm. like that. That Right. You just you take what you can. It's like if uh, if if the late great David Bowie made a new album and it had two good songs on it. You're like, oh, awesome. Great. Yeah. But Bowie managed to make a good. Well, I mean. Morrissey is a perfect example of somebody who I'm like, oh my god, he's got three good songs this time. Look at you, Morrissey. Yeah, that is, and you just don't get bothered by track nine. Yeah, that's I never really like thought about comparing those things because there are like huge movies, like movie franchises, there and TV shows that go on for a long time, and then when it gets to that ending, you know, everybody has freaks out and they're they're bummed about the ending and they're like oh i can't believe i wasted the last blah 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 years of my life sometimes justifiably so obviously yeah but still it's like well you kept watching it so you clearly were enjoying it uh yeah well game of thrones was really about who was going to end up on that throne and the answer they came up with was incredibly stupid well i never enjoyed that show to begin with okay uh, so I can't really speak on that one. That just, mm-hmm. again, that's one of those things. I know a lot of people love it. Not for me. Uh, right. Which surprised a lot of people. But um, but yeah, but nobody, I feel like a, a, an artist can maybe put out a, a, a album that's not so great, but kind of like what you're saying, though, and the, people will continue to stick with it, or they'll find those, those couple good songs. There's no, like, I can't believe I've spent the last 25 years listening to this guy. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I do wonder if it was, and I don't say this in a cynical way, I, I mean this exactly the way that I say it, I wonder if it was even humanly possible to make something that was going to check all of the boxes, that were going to make the hardcore of the hardcore and my son both feel equally good about, and everyone in between, about where it came down. As somebody who, I, I'm a, a very ignorant, like, dumb movie viewer, I like to think I'm a fairly intelligent person, but like... Uh, so I I have friends who I go to movies with and three minutes in, they tap me on the shoulder and they're like, she's the killer. It's going to be her. She's going to blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I just don't, I, I just sort of let things wash over me. I don't really sit there unless you really, again, Game of Thrones, unless you really insult my intelligence, you yeah. know? So the, I, I'm just like, I, it's pretty hard, easy to, to fool me with a, with a twist and a good reveal at the end. Mm-hmm. And nobody wanted to find out that Ray was another Skywalker or, or, or anything like right. that 
but I don't know that there was any possible way that they could have said, yeah, she's absolutely nobody, And but look, doesn't that tie the whole thing together? So for me, when they were like Palpatine, I was like, oh my God, my mind is fucking blown here. <laughs> here I was here I was thinking there's only one family in Star Wars. It does turn out there's a second last name. <laughs> oh my right. goodness, you've really got me there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and- I actually thought it was a very elegant solution. Yeah, and I agree completely uh, that no matter what had happened in this movie, there would have been a bunch of people complaining about it. No matter. And I what. also, yeah, and I also wonder what would, what the case would be if, uh, you know, every now and again, I know like Neil Young's putting out an album that he just like recorded in '73 and it didn't come out for some reason, and Bruce Springsteen had a similar situation. If for some reason there was. Um, a 30 minutes of star Wars that had been made and shelved during the classic George Lucas era. And it was about as good as all the rest of the stuff, you know, highs and lows. And it came out now and people saw it clear eyed throughout the, the haze of nostalgia, Mm -hmm. exactly how great the hardcore would find even that. Because like, for example, if, if any of the characters that had any sort of buildup in this had died in the way that Boba Fett died in return Mm -hmm. of the Jedi, well, kind of, kind of. I mean, Faz- she Captain was, Phasma. Yeah, Phasma kind of yeah, fits that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was. Yeah, Phasma was kind of the the Boba Fett of this trilogy. I think. It absolutely, positively, maybe the not the- not not quite as as big of a thing, but definitely like had that like pre before it came out hype. You know. No, I think the analogy is perfect. Ultimately, what this person was was a cool helmet. Yeah, they played no role in the story whatsoever. They're just a very, very cool helmet. But even Phasma got more than just a Howard Dean scream and falling <laughs> into <laughs> right <laughs> a, a pit. And so now I, I wonder if, as somebody who has your ear to the ground a little bit more to what's going on with Star Wars universe rumblings, like where do you guess they? go from here because I got first of all I want to defend Disney's track record whatever you think I think only the most cynical would um, deny that uh, Force Awakens was successful Rogue One was successful and The Mandalorian was successful and Mm -hmm. that's a pretty amazing batting average that Disney's got If, if you only grant them that but I got a bad feeling, no pun intended, at the end of, of, of Rise of Skywalker that all of a sudden Finn might have kind of sort of had the force. Yeah. And that his new friend might have seemed like she was being primed for a spinoff and that Lando might have been primed to come along for that ride. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't sure what the, that ending was specifically with the... Uh the girl uh yeah janna is that her name something like that Uh, because yeah it almost seemed like are they kind of are they trying to hint that lando is maybe her dad like that weird brief conversation that seemed just kind of thrown in see this is what i'm talking about about me being an intelligent person that watches movies like a dumb person yeah of course yeah interplanetary gigolo and only (laughs) other like blackmail in the star wars universe like of course he's her dad everybody's everybody's dad it's star (laughs) wars But uh yeah it was uh it didn't seem necessary but whatever. No. Uh, yeah, I don't know, but I, I I did sort of have that even before the movie came out though. I did always kind of wonder a little bit about Finn because you know there is that scene in Force Awakens where he has the lightsaber and he yeah. like seems like he kind of knows what he's doing. 
And, right. I was uh, under the impression that like your fingers burned if you picked one up if you weren't a Jedi prior to this. <laughs> just never came up. I just assumed those were off limits. To not- I thought I had thought Jedi's were the only people who could turn them on. Oh. Yeah, I think it's just a button. Just a simple button. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like so I think I feel mostly the same as you. I, I you know, as I said, I really like Force Awakens. I think it's mm-hmm. very, very, very good. I think I'm I think more bullish and maybe because it's like top I think it's my second favorite one now. Star Wars, totally. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what's your first? My first is the original. The okay, that's fair. One. Yeah. Thank you. It's very, very, very good. And everybody says that it's just A New Hope rebooted. It is that, and it is so much more. And it's yeah. a really amazing um, nesting doll when you actually really start to dig into it. And Last Jedi is is Last Jedi. I really felt satisfied with my theatrical experience of rise of Skywalker, I've been a little disappointed that the more I watched force awakens, the more I really enjoyed the nuances of it. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the opposite experience from rewatching rise of Skywalker. I hate to say I, it lacks, I, it really lacks moments. I think I agree with you. I noticed that recently cause I kind of like threw it on the other night late while I was just kind of doing whatever before bed and just kind of want to have it on in the background. And I kind of was feeling that same way where I, I even though I really did enjoy it and saw it three or four times, I think before it left theaters, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm definitely not rewatching it quite as much as I expected right. to. Yeah, right. Whereas Last Jedi, the the I think everyone would agree weakest of the bunch may have had the most memorable battle scene of the three with the fun little broken fighters with the red sand stuff at the end. Yeah. The oh, I, I love the the Snoke throne room scene. I think is is maybe my favorite scene in any Star Wars movie. Right. If you don't think about that one too deeply, and the way they explain away Snoke and yeah, right. That's when you got to remind yourself that it's a children's movie. Yeah, exactly. When a, when, a, <laughs> when a guy gets cut in half, that's when you remind yourself this is for kids. <laughs> All right, good. Good talk. Star Wars. Great. I want to talk to you about uh I want to talk to you about your podcast, which it seems like you're you're trucking along with the bizarre albums. Yeah. I'm I'm uh that's been uh well, aside from thoroughly enjoying doing the show, it's it's worked out to my benefit the way I do the show because it's literally just me always, yeah. you know. Every now and then I might be able to track down somebody involved with one of the albums I'm covering, but uh Usually, even when I do that, it's just a phone call or something. So, like, you know, it's nothing really has changed for me as far as producing the show. Like, I was doing it all from home anyways. So, yeah, going strong. And I think it's it's a nice time for things that are from the past and are far enough away that they can no longer hurt us. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I find, like, listening to your podcast it's just and even when i when i'm able to track down mark mcgrath and talk about our old dumb 80s stuff there's just something really really nice about really digging into a subject that has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in the world right now because yeah conversationally all roads have led back to you know donald trump for some time and Mm -hmm. then all roads started leading back to coronavirus and um and now nowadays all roads lead back to you know the all of the black lives matter and protests et cetera that have been going on and god knows what awful events or series of events all roads will lead back to come the fall and it is yeah. really really nice to uh, to have a conversation um Eddie Murphy's music career 
cannot possibly be tied into any current event whatsoever. <laughs> well, can it? Uh, it's funny you say that because yes, the 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 latest episode is on that first Eddie Murphy uh, music album. How could it be? Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was starting to do my research, uh, you know, I I was a big Eddie Murphy guy back back when. I mean, I still enjoy him here and there, but like. Young Eddie Murphy was so goddamn funny. Uh, and so in reading up on him, I mean, I already knew this part, but then, you know, was reminded big influence on him was Richard Pryor and specifically an album that I'm not going to say the title of. Um, and one of the tracks on that Richard Pryor album is about police brutality, basically. And the album is from 1975. And, uh, so, I, yeah, I found that immediately. I was like, well, this seems, you know, I, I know this show is a little bit of a escape, I think, to get your mind off of things. But this seems like it's, that's right there. And it's, this is from 1975, and it's just as relevant now as right. uh, as ever. Uh, yeah. So, like, far yeah. too many things from far too long ago are just as relevant now as they were then. Yeah. So I had to, I had to, I actually started the episode that way by just playing a little clip of that track from uh, Richard Pryor. Um, so I'm sorry to shoot down what you just said, but wow. <laughs> there, there was that, that little bit there where it wasn't my intent to involve that, but uh, yeah, there it was. Well, that dovetails with what you've been doing. Ten- I know you've been doing uh, charitable stuff with your, with your podcast. I've been trying to, yeah. The uh, the auctions just ended yesterday, yeah. Because I have a bunch. I always try to have a physical copy of of whatever record I'm I'm doing, and sometimes certain records don't exist on vinyl, and so there's a few CDs that I had, and uh, I don't have any use for CDs, and I didn't know if anyone would care, but I was like, I'm just gonna put a bunch of these CDs I have up on, for auction. I'll throw in some bizarre album stickers and whatever and i didn't know if people would care because it's it's a dead media basically uh dead medium uh and i think i put well first of all the macho man randy savage cd ended up selling for 91 dollars. <laughs> man i should have held on to my copy <laughs> oh you had one i did i got that as a, a promo my last job was uh i, I wrote a syndicated daily pop countdown show for carson daly uh-huh but i was on every publicist in the world's mailing list because yeah. there was so much heat on him at that point and so i would just it was amazing the 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 you know like oh yeah no uh carson could definitely be interested in a uh in discussing this uh dvd box set of mystery science theater i mean no uh. promises i can't guarantee you're gonna <laughs> right. get an on-air mention but i can definitely put it in front of him so i said yes to i abused that position to get things like uh i don't think i had to ask too hard to get a promo copy of the, <laughs> the be a manhole i remember i had the the promo eight by ten hanging in my cubicle as you should yeah yeah, that, there's there's not that many copies of that. Like, it is pr- actually pretty hard to find. So, in one way, it wasn't surprising. I was surprised how much it went for, but I had a feeling it would go for a decent price. But all of them ended up going for way more than I expected. And yeah, so I'm donating all that money to Black Lives Matter. So that's wonderful. That's that's very good of you. And uh, well, speaking of the the Macho Man thing, I've kind of developed this rule of thumb that if you if you listen to it for more than a week, it's probably not a guilty pleasure. <laughs> and I don't know how to describe it, but like I don't have Be a Man Hulk in like rotation in my music collection. 
but uh-huh. if it comes on, I never turn it off. There is something weirdly listenable about Randy Macho Man Savage doing this horrible dated rap. It's very entertaining. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, it, it's uh, it's like some it's like some sort of middle ground between uh, like the super early. Uh, in the 80s when like every celebrity like would try and do like a rap that they would put out you yeah know, the dragnet rap yeah but a, a lot of times those uh you know were just like so cheesy and like you know the my name is my and i'm here to say you know it's a lot yeah. of that kind they of they were stuff. always here to say something yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas this is uh it's it's not it's not that it's it but yeah it's not what you're saying it's not good but it's 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 at least a step above the my name is randy and i'm here to say well and it's also (laughs) it's a really perfect marriage of what his skill set always was which was whatever you call promos or i don't know the the wrestling parlance but it's just a it's just a wrestling promo yeah uh that rhymes right but apparently legit like he was for real in real life, upset with Hulk Hogan. Oh, yeah, and, and see, that's the thing. I felt like it. I felt like it was coming from a very real place, which is, <laughs> yeah, and it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a fucking misfit toy that was. So yeah. let's talk about that. Tell me what you know about that that I don't know. Uh, well, um, in so that album came out in two thousand and three, uh, and I'm not positive exactly of the time frame, but sometime. A year or two before that, um, roughly, uh, he was Macho Man was upset about Hulk already <laughs> for some. Re- then that part I'm not totally clear on why he was initially upset with him. Apparently, they always kind of had a rocky friendship. Like you know, on on screen, yes, they were always turning on each other and stuff. But like apparently, even behind the scenes, not really a great friendship either. Uh, so he was already upset with him about something, and then he challenged Hulk Hogan to a real fight, apparently, and wanted to do it on pay-per-view, and was going to donate all the proceeds to uh, the uh, Children's Hospital, some, something along those lines I'm, I'm spacing at the moment, uh, but some sort of children's charity, uh, was going to donate all that money, and... So he put the challenge out there, and Hulk just didn't accept it. And so that that's what uh, that's where the that's how this album came to be. And that's how <laughs> Be a Man Hulk was born. Yep, literally out of out of challenging him to a real life fight, and he didn't accept. <laughs> Wonderful. And then who? And this is well after the heyday. Like this all sort of gets gets lost. So he had an '80s heyday, and then they all had another. Well, I guess like, it was like a late 90s run. Was yeah, he like up in mid, that hole? Yeah, mid-late 90s. Because 96 was when the whole thing with uh, when Hulk Hogan turned it a bad guy and the NWO and all that stuff happened. Uh, so then, yeah, Hollywood was, Hogan. Yes, there was that big boom then, and eventually Macho Man joins that and all that. So that, and that, was, that went till like 2000. I believe in 2000 is when the WWE bought WCW. And okay. he pretty much was retired at this point. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it, it was even like a little bit past that second boom, I think. Yeah. All right. So I guess the question that I wondered at the time 
and still wonder today was, did Macho Man decide he had a rap album in him and pursue musicians with which to make that dream a reality? Or was he approached by people who thought that his shtick lent itself to hip hop? Uh, yeah, he was approached. Uh, he was apparently just at a some sort of like big like con like a business conference or something somewhere in Florida. Sure, and, why not? Uh, the head of this uh, small label called Big Three Records was at this same event, and they met each other. And yeah, this guy had a label um, that I, uh, weirdly at the time had Cheap Trick on the label. Uh, and then everyone else was kind of these like really small artists that never really did anything. Um, so he approached him and just sort of figured like, oh, it's Macho Man. We can, we can sell this. And he apparently was hesitant. Macho Man was hesitant. And the guy was like, oh, we have people that can, can help you, like teach you how to rap, basically. And, uh, and he, he did it. Did he ever do live performances, do you know? Supposedly, although I can't seem <laughs> to get, I couldn't find any footage, uh, but I found multiple interviews where he talks about that he, that he did, but I have not okay. been able to like get like real confirmation. Because that's the thing with some of these wrestlers, I think, is sometimes you're like, is, is what they're saying right now real, or is this part of their persona? Kayfabe, you know? right. Yeah, exactly. So a little bit unclear, but supposedly. Man. I mean, you know, like I would have liked to have seen like the doors, but <laughs> to see Macho Man, I I'll make a bold statement. I would much rather see the Macho Man over the doors. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I don't know why I chose the doors. That's not even it's not even really close. Um, okay, so you mentioned Eddie Murphy, and I'm actually surprised as somebody who was a pretty big fan of his musical career as a seven year old. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised to learn that there was an album. Because I requested from my parents and received a 45 vinyl mm -hmm. single of Party All the Time. Yeah. And I remember I was like a, I mean, I, I'm still this kind of person. I was a kid. I would like listen to the B-side as much as I listened to the, the single, not knowing that this was garbage crap that nobody was supposed right. to take seriously because I was a kid. And I so I recall that the B-side to Party All the Time was just an instrumental with party yeah. all the time. I feel like that was which a big move in the 80s, yeah. Which which is stupid because the purpose of a B-side would be to try to give, you know, put a strong album track on there and give people the idea that maybe there's a reason to buy the whole album. I mean, that's I don't know what the point of B-sides is if not, you know, in the right. classic B-side era. So even dumb little me was like, "Oh, I guess he doesn't have an album. I guess he just did this one song or else he would have put another one of his songs so i so i could sit here and enjoy it and dance in my underwear around my parents living room mm -hmm. like i was doing with like hurt so good and whatever the shit b-side of hurt so good was <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. so there is an album and obviously you know rick james is that's essentially a rick james album right no that's the okay. that's a common misconception though so rick james wrote and produced party all the time but that's the mm -hmm. only involvement he has with the record at all just okay. that song. And right. so what, what you're saying apparently was the original plan uh, was that Eddie Murphy worked with Rick James on Party All the Time, and it was just going to be a single. And I guess everyone was so happy with how it came out that it turned into... It was into, successful. Yeah. It turned was that into a top, him. Was that a top 10 single? I believe... It went to number two, if I remember right. Uh, right. And... Uh, but I think... 
I don't think it was necessarily released and then they decided to put out the album. I think it was just like they made it and then all the parties involved were satisfied and they're like, oh my right, God, he can do, do anything. A- yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, it just, it came out of that. So the, the, my, my favorite thing that I learned from doing the research on this one was that, so yes, Rick James only did party all the time. Um, Stevie Wonder wrote two songs on the album and produced one of them, but the rest of the album was produced by someone named Akil Fudge, which is, first of all, a great name. Uh, (laughs) And supposedly, although a little bit of mystery uh, that I even found out after I finished the episode, apparently there were rumors that that was actually Eddie Murphy, like an alias that he just produced it himself. But supposedly that is not true, and Akil Fudge is Stevie Wonder's cousin. Uh, and the my favorite thing about him though is when you look if you look him up on like Discogs or All Music, um, he has three credits ever, uh, three producing credits. This this Eddie Murphy record, a song that was a B side for a Michael Winslow single, the guy that made all the noises in the Police Academy movies. Okay, I'm making notes here now. Okay, yeah, keep talking. <laughs> and his third uh, thing he produced, and his final thing he produced, was a song for the Washington Redskins, like sung by the team and the fans. And that's it. Stevie's not Stevie's not available, but he's got this cousin Akil. <laughs> Apparently so. Stevie wow. could only do two. Yeah, uh, that was. Have so- you have you made any effort to locate Akil Fudge? I have not. Again, it's it's. It, there's not a ton of information out there. Like there is this part of me that like wonders: is he a real person? Right. But, uh, so right. But yeah. by but to follow that uh, conspiracy theory to its <laughs> logical conclusion, one would have to believe that Eddie Murphy, under an alias, made a song for Michael Winslow <laughs> and the Washington Redskins. Right. I know that is that is the part that makes it a little more believable. <laughs> Uh, or or it was the uh, what's the uh, what's the fake name they use in in movies? Uh, yeah, Alan Smithy. Yes, there you go. Maybe that was like a, a, a short lived Alan Smithy of music. Creative differences over the way your Washington Redskins song came out, and so <laughs> yeah, you take your name you take your name off of it. Yeah, it's so amazing that anybody manages to disappear, especially who's somebody who's ever had any public uh, profile in this day and age. I happen to. Uh, look up the performer. I think her name is Q Lazarus. Does that mean anything to you? I don't think so. So she is a solo performer who is known for one song and one song only. If you look at her Spotify, the top three songs are all versions of the song. I think it's Goodbye Horses, which is infamous as, that's probably starting to ring a bell, Uh infamous as the song where Buffalo Bill sticks his dick between his legs and dances in Silence (laughs) of the Lambs. Uh Which is actually, it's, it's a pretty great, little song and yeah. it sounds a lot like a, it sounds a lot like a bronski beat and like uh like really deep electronic pop stuff coming out of the uk in the early 80s and the story with her goes that the director i forget i think it's jonathan demi there's two demis there's jonathan and ted right yes so i guess jonathan demi is in a taxi in new york and the taxi driver has this music on the radio and he really enjoys it. And he says, um, you know, who are we listening to? And she goes, this is me. This is my demo. 
And he said, well, you should really have a career out of this. And she says, nobody wants me to do this stuff. I don't look the part. She's like a middle-aged like uh, black lady. And he takes her to Hollywood. And, t- and he's already an established director and takes her to record labels. And nobody really wants anything to do with her. But he keeps putting her songs in, in his movies. And apparently she has songs in like three different, I think she has a song in like maybe Philadelphia uh-huh. and Silence of the Lambs and like a comedy of some sort. I forget what it is. And nothing happens. And yeah. this woman has literally disappeared. And her the final sentence of her Wikipedia entry is that a handful of devoted fans think they found her driving a bus on Staten Island in 2015. Wow. Yeah, I've, it's really I, this shocking is... that you can still disappear. Yeah, nowadays the 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 one thing I did find when trying to find out a little more info on Mister Fudge uh, yeah. was weird. <laughs> weirdly, that name also came up on IMDb, but it was yeah. like as like a production assistant on shows right. like kind of recent. Mm-hmm. And so that that just made it more mysterious to me. It's like Stevie's he cousin's a versatile talent. Yeah, well, but like to be a, a, a working as a PA, like recent, like thirty five years later, like that just that doesn't quite seem right. I don't know. Tony, have you considered the possibility it might be a Kill Fudge Junior? <laughs> yes, yes, it has, but it doesn't. It didn't say. It didn't say Junior. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, let's, let's just work our way through some more recent albums of um, recent episodes of Bizarre Albums. Pac-Man Fever. I think I know. I think I kind of know the story there. What's the deal with uh, with Pac-Man Fever? Uh, that was just a couple of guys, uh, Buckner and Garcia, uh, Jerry Buckner and Gary Garcia. Uh, and they were just this, a couple of guys from Ohio originally we're living in Atlanta and basically writing jingles and like trying to trying to they were doing okay I think in their jingle career but trying to you know get out there a little more and I think had released one novelty song in like the early 80s this really weird novelty song uh and then it was literally as simple as they went to dinner one night in like 1982 81 or 80 no I think it was 82 uh and this place had a Pac-Man tabletop game and that was their first time ever seeing it and they played it and they loved it and then they started going there all the time so that they could play more and then, you know, Pac-Man became this giant thing everywhere and so they decided, hey, we should write a song about Pac-Man. Maybe this will also help our jingle business. And uh, so they recorded it and eventually... Uh, gets them signed, but it, it fir- they had a hard time at first. Uh, I guess like locally in, in uh, around Atlanta was doing well, and then over time, it just kind of. Uh, I'm I'm spacing a little bit at the moment on on everything. My brain is a little bit mush these days. Actually, very mush these days. There's quite uh, a bit of that going around. Yes, I think uh, we're so all just putting we're, we're all just putting a brave face on this. Yeah. Every time I crack a microphone, I have no idea why anybody's paying attention to me. <laughs> Same. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was something along those lines. I'm for, uh, details are a little bit fuzzy. It's been a few weeks now. Um, of course. But, uh, yeah, eventually this gets them signed, and they um, have to make an entire record then, and the label wants the record, like, 
pretty much like ASAP. They want to oh, like, capitalize fucking... on this. Oh, dude, I love I love an album that needs to happen this week. Yeah. And uh, um, so supposedly they wrote and recorded the rest of the album in two weeks. And when they started writing for the rest, uh, they were just making these like songs about whatever. And then apparently uh, head, the head of the label came to the studio and was like, oh, no, these we want all video game songs. And so they sure. cha- had to change everything. And so every song on the record is about some sort some 80s arcade there's a frogger song a centipede song there's a (laughs) i'm wondering were there even were there even 10 video games then uh there were i forget how many songs are on the record but yeah there uh there's one oh what is it is it berserk berserker something like yeah there's one that was like of like really not or no 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 i'm sorry uh mousetrap there was apparently a, 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 it wasn't ever very popular, and I think they kind of took a chance on, like, they had seen this game and played it, so they made a song about it. And that's one that's, like, now, like, everybody's kind of like, what is what is that game? Yeah, right. But, hey, if they, you know, that's a lottery ticket. If that had blown up, that could have been yeah. the next big thing, and they could have perpetuated their fame. And did they end up, like, uh, I feel like it's darn near impossible to have overnight success that is short-lived and actually see real money out of it. Especially if it's like a novelty song, I think is yeah. even harder to keep going right. with. I think they they ended up making some money, and and it keeps popping back up. Um, they in like '99, they basically it was one of those things where they like didn't have the rights to everything, and so they did the thing where they re-recorded every song and put out a new version of it. And then there was even a like re uh, a kind of a remix with a, I forget the current artist. Uh, that was in that movie Pixels. And I you took the word right out of my mouth. Yeah. Right, that seems like that would have been a bonanza for those guys. Yeah, and they did a song for the first uh, Wreck It Ralph movie, also. Uh huh. So oh, you know, although one uh, one of them is, has passed away, um, and I think he maybe even passed away before that, before Wreck It Ralph, but they still credit the song to Buckner and Garcia. Sure, 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 yeah. sure. Yeah, it's amazing. There is no like property dated or flimsy enough that it will not enjoy several renaissances yeah. the way our culture is, is oh, yeah. going it's it's amazing i mean the yeah. people who must have just sold catalogs just going i mean for the love of god what could what could how could anyone possibly make money out of you know trolls yeah you know? right. <laughs> here, here we are we're, we're gonna complete the trolls trilogy i'm here to tell you uh-huh i'm i mean i'm just i'm I'm dying for this California Raisins reboot. That's all I want, you know? That can't be a joke, right? <laughs> uh, what, that that's happening or that yeah. I want that? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's definitely, I feel like uh, what Stretch Armstrong seems like that's like the, that's mm. as far as Hollywood can go. I don't, for several years now, I've been reading about this gritty reboot of Stretch Armstrong that's going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's where it like starts getting weird when they try to do the gritty reboots of like what's the most ridiculous gritty reboot? I mean, that would be up there. I mean, I guess if you try to do a gritty California raisins also. Oh god, I know I just read about one yesterday. Again, my brain also mush. In our defense, I think everybody listening has mush brain as well, so I'm sure they understand, but my god, I just read about something yesterday that was going to have like human characters even though it was it, it may as well have been the California raisins and the, the Rock and Jack Black have signed on to play human versions of right. this. Yeah, 
So I'm very curious to know, I was amused and tickled to no end by you posting the David Lee Roth Spanish language album. Uh-huh. That was that was one of the earliest records that I like knew that I wanted to cover. I had absolutely like, that was on my short list. I had no idea that this existed. It makes absolute perfect sense that Diamond Dave would have thought that that was a good idea and mm-hmm. gosh is it entertaining. I watched that clip that you posted like <laughs> four times in a row. It's just so it's just so funny and stupid and Dave. So I, I feel like I can kind of guess, but yeah. why, why did, why did that happen? That was um, supposedly the idea came from Billy Sheehan, who the was bassist. his bass player sure. at the time. Uh, he had read an article somewhere that was saying that a huge part of the Mexican population uh, was, the exact right record buying age, like kind of that target market that they're going for. So it was as simple as that. I was like, Hey, we should do a version of this in Spanish because there's a, apparently a huge market for that. So they tried that and, uh, pretty much a big, big failure. Nobody really cared. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't do so well. I think it quickly went out of print. Um, but I do remember it. I remember it from when I was a kid because I remember it being discussed on MTV and MTV even showing um, the Spanish version of "Going Crazy" video a few times. <laughs> uh, so, like, this, it was like ingrained in my brain. I, I totally remember this record happening. So, yeah, when I kind of first was starting to have the idea of figuring out what the, my show was going to be. Uh, that was on my short list of things I knew I wanted to cover. And then uh, sometimes I try, I've try. i been trying to do things now where uh, if something, if a date maybe uh, lines up historically with uh, an album that would make sense, uh, I try to release around those dates. And it just so happened that when I was looking at the calendar for 2020, I saw that, so I always put my episodes out on Tuesdays, and Cinco de Mayo happened to be on a Tuesday so I was like, well, all right, well, why not do the Spanish David Lee Roth album for Cinco de Mayo? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Dave always fancied himself a, a citizen of the world. So, <laughs> yeah. Boy, and, and let me tell you, let me give you, you and all your listeners, a piece of advice. Something I do not recommend. Do not spend multiple days watching tons of David Lee Roth interviews. Oh, come on. Because... Boy, oh boy, does he get real annoying after a while. <laughs> he just, everything that comes out of his mouth, he is so pleased with. Like he's <laughs> Sometimes you have no idea what he's talking about. Like, he just, I, I honestly get the impression that he's actually probably really intelligent. Uh, or he's just crazy enough to make it seem like he is. <laughs> But yeah, he's just he just he just can talk and talk and talk and you half the time don't know what he's talking about and he's just just this huge smile as soon as he's done talking. Yeah. Like, just so proud of what he just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, he always gets to hang out with his favorite guy in the world, so he can't lose. <laughs> right. Yeah, Steven Tyler is very much the same thing. Hair hair metal was uh was yeah. was uh tailor made for, for guys like that. I've I've plugged it many, many times, but once again, if people are looking for some summer reading, the David Lee Roth autobiography, Crazy from the Heat, is 
Yeah. It's just not exactly what you think it's going to be. For one thing, I swear to God, Van Halen is about eight pages. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. incredible how he has minimized <laughs> that in his in his story. Uh, yeah, what a what a strange guy. I just saw God. I'm trying to figure out what this movie is that they're putting a human cast in California Raisins or something like that. And the best I was able to come up with is that uh, good news: the all the unanswered questions from Sonic the Hedgehog one will be answered. Whew. All right. Thank God. Yeah. It's crazy that in my world, I'm actually kind of looking forward to that, which is inevitably going to happen in my living room on a popcorn night. Yeah. Because at least Jim Carrey's in it. I've uh, I've heard from some people with kids mm-hmm. that uh, that it was kind of enjoyable, that it was actually kind of fun. I know a guy who... So I hear. I know a guy who worked in the department that made, not not just worked on the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, worked in the department in which the original maligned sonic was created uh-huh. and uh he was actually fairly defensive about it yeah <laughs> yeah but so it, it basically my message is anybody who thought that that was a very very clever ruse to gain interest in a property that nobody on their right mind should be interested in it was not mm-hmm. they really tried with that original sonic and it just didn't come together and i actually feel bad for them because it was unintentionally the greatest marketing of all time but they got the the double whammy that people became very very interested in a movie that as I say nobody in the right mind would have or should be uh, interested in, and then when time came to capitalize on it, you know, nothing doing. Yeah. And so now it's one of the zombie um, movie posters that's on the the marquee outside of the movie theater at the Grove, which oh, really? is one of the more post-apocalyptic places you can visit in los angeles these days although i understand it it reopened a couple days ago so maybe they have finally turned over the movie posters but it's just like Mm. frozen in ember from what was happening in pop culture right one day in march has just been the deserted movie theater with the the tumbleweed Mm -hmm. going past at the grove and sonic's been one of them it's been these are crazy times did it actually get a theatrical? Re- I know, obviously, it was supposed to, but did was the release date after all of this started, or was it right before? I have I to remember. think that it did make it to theaters. Maybe people had already stopped leaving their their homes by then. But again, it's up on the big marquee. It's not a coming soon. Yeah. It's actually something that's right, that's right, right. Oh, okay. that's in gotcha. theaters. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me see. I do. I have a couple minutes left, and I'm trying to decide between Don Johnson and Morton Downey Jr. Which one did you enjoy more? Uh, probably, probably the Don Johnson one. Uh, the Morton Downey Jr. one was just a. Obviously, I, I remembered him from back in the day, and I just kind of stumbled into finding that record when out shopping one day, and so I was like, "Well, I got to get this." Uh, but uh, the Don Johnson one, nothing too crazy fascinating about that. Um, it's so is he? I'm interested to know. I, listening to your Terry Bradshaw episode, it, 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 there's there's always one of two ways that these can go. One is this guy considered himself or, or lady considered themselves a musician, and then something else happened in their career, and now they're returning to a thing that was a passion of theirs. Or it's this person gets, and that was sort of the case with Terry Bradshaw. He really was a singer. He really was able yeah. to to sing and was more qualified than I ever would have guessed to make an album. And then mm-hmm. there's just the, I'm fucking Don Johnson. I think I'm going to make an album now. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of both, mm-hmm. but mostly just the I'm Don, Don Johnson, I want to make an album. <laughs> Because uh, he supposedly uh, had kind of been singing a lot of his life, but it's uh, from what I could tell, mostly like things like when he was younger, like singing in church and like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So uh, he, you know, Miami Vice happens. I think 84 was when that started. And it blows up. And he, I think before, right before the second season or after the second season, he becomes the like highest paid actor in the history of TV at that point. Um, And is apparently just at a party one night. And the head of, I believe it was Columbia Records that put it out, uh, was at the party and they start talking. And literally, apparently he was just like, I'd love to make an album. And they signed him immediately without ever hearing him sing or anything. Well, bear in mind at this point, the instrumental theme song from Miami Vice had already been, yeah. if not a if not a number one hit, a top five hit. I believe it was a number one hit. Yeah. So I think it was the first instrumental song that went to number one since Chariots of Fire. Uh, Peter Gunn. Actually, oh my so way goodness! Back in this, yeah, I believe. If, again, fuzzy, fuzzy a little bit, I'm but not I'm pretty hold you sure that was what I. Yeah. <laughs> right. So actually sure having Don right. on the Miami Vice song seems like it's you, you can't really miss and I guess they were right like he did they did have a hit. Yeah. Uh it's yeah, the the actual song Heartbeat mm-hmm. that was the then title track for the record. Yeah, like did okay, I think was a top 20 hit. Um, I want to say it was top 10 cuz I know I I I I've, I've discussed that with uh with McGrath. We yeah. love talking about failed uh, follow-up singles, and if you thought Heartbeat was bad, mm. you should hear the follow-up single. <laughs> but but again, it's one of those, and uh, the Eddie Murphy record is, is the same way, and so many of these celebrity records, when it's somebody huge making them, tons of guests yeah. and, and legit people on this record, you're like, how did, like, Ron Wood from the Rolling Stones is on the record, Stevie Ray Vaughan's on the record. Yeah, Tower of uh, Power Horns. It, yeah, Tower Power Horns. It, it, Tower Power comes up on almost every. I know they, they are on every. Record. I love that. It's crazy. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I, I mean, and that's kind of like a thing that I accidentally kind of started doing on the show was all these records end up being having some sort of connection with another weird one. So that's why, like, I always find one at the end that I can kind of almost do this little like cliffhanger uh, of of mentioning someone that also worked on this record by. Vicky Lawrence or who you know so uh she's so much that's more been than like Mama. a fun <laughs> exactly <laughs> but that that's turned into like a fun yet some usually not hard but sometimes it does turn into a little bit of a challenge where I've I've sort of backed myself into this corner now like oh where's my uh where's my connection this week that I'm gonna leave hanging um but usually usually uh it's 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 not hard to find one but every now and then I'll I'll have to search a little harder but well that's fun there. you're fun your brain one day will be restored to its former <laughs> normally working state, as will all of ours. I, we have to go. I, we're out of time. But um, thank you for your time. And I encourage everybody, as always, to check out the Bizarre Albums podcast. Thank you hey. for having me. Always a pleasure. Oh, and uh, real quick, uh, for anybody listening, if they are um, Motion City Soundtrack fans, uh, I just this morning the the auction will end the auctions will end uh, this coming Friday, uh, and I put up a bunch of just like Motion City uh, memorabilia and like weird stuff that I had extras of laying around. Once again, raising money for Black Lives Matter. So once all that is done, I will be donating all that money. So uh, if you want to find that link, just social media at Tony Daxton. I'll have the links there. You're a good man, Tony. Thank you. Thank you.